Well, again, welcome. So glad that you are, are here this morning with us. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor. Uh, it's just great to be able to gather together and worship uh, in proclamation of God's word, um, sitting around it, learning from it, uh, as well as, as a family together. Um, and so I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I love Sundays. I love that we get to do this uh, together. Well, I, I read a, a fascinating article um, just this past week. It's a few months old. It was in, in Slate magazine. It's kind of a, a little bit of an obscure online thing, but I found it there. Now, let me, let me read a little bit of it to you. The title of the, of the article is Loneliness is Deadly. Grab my eye. Uh, the author writes, feeling uncertain, I began to research loneliness and came across several alarming recent studies. Loneliness is not just making us sick, it is killing us. Loneliness is a serious health risk. Studies of elderly people in social isolation concluded that those without adequate interaction were twice as likely to die prematurely. The increased mortality risk is comparable to that from smoking. And loneliness is about twice as dangerous as obesity. Social isolation impairs immune function and boosts inflammation, which can lead to arthritis, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. Loneliness is breaking our hearts, but as a culture... We rarely talk about it. Okay, good grief. All right, uh, now that we're all feeling both lonely and paranoid, um, she continues, okay? It gets worse. Loneliness has doubled. 40% of adults in two recent surveys said they were lonely, up from 20% in the 1980s. And then just one more slap in the face. All of our internet interactions aren't helping and maybe making loneliness worse. A recent study of Facebook users found that the amount of time you spend on the social network is inversely related to how happy you feel throughout the day. So if you weren't feeling lonely when you came in this morning, uh, you are now, right? You're welcome for that. Um, and, And what's lonelier than feeling lonely and yet surrounded by all these people? And that's why for some of you, church can be really, really lonely. And I, I hate feeling lonely. I mean, who doesn't? And we all feel it in a variety of ways. I mean, maybe you feel lonely in your, in your marriage. I mean, there are a few places lonelier than a difficult marriage, right? Maybe you feel lonely in your, your singleness. Maybe as an empty nester. Uh, maybe it's something with your health or, or work or, or, or depression. Kids, maybe you feel alone at school or on the team. And we feel weak, don't we? Or, or maybe it's in some area of temptation or, or shame and we, we sort of hide ourselves away, isolated and alone in the dark. We don't like it. Of course, we're not the first people to feel this way. I mean, I think back at the, the first century church, that same one we've been talking about for the last few weeks as we've been studying the New Testament book of Hebrews. I mean, there they were, right? This, this group of, of newer believers there in the first century, uh, mostly Jewish Christians, uh, which means they'd given up a whole lot to embrace Jesus. I mean, they'd already been rejected by their Jewish brothers and sisters, ostracized from their families. And then you've got the Romans, right, on, on the other side of the fence. Uh, and the Romans were pluralist, right? They didn't really care about anything except... They didn't exactly have room for a faith based on the resurrection of someone they'd crucified as an insurrectionist. So either way, they're lonely. 
I mean, Christians in the first century were deeply misunderstood, even considered strangely dangerous because they were just so different in the way they approached God. So they were alone. And the persecution was just really beginning to to heat up. And so Christians were, were weak and vulnerable. And then add to it, the fact that they, as, as we've been saying, as we've I've been looking at Hebrews, that they're, they're at risk of drifting, right? So they're, they're close to possibly abandoning Jesus, which means now they really don't fit anywhere, right? And then, of course, add to that just the normal frustrations of health and relationships and work and the normal stuff that we deal with, with temptation, you and I share with them. So what do they need to hear? I mean, the author has already told them that Jesus is better. He's, he's warned them of the dangers of falling away. So, suck it up. Try harder. You know, just, just get over your loneliness. Move on. No. And that's not exactly what we need to hear either. We need something more in our frustration. Something more in our loneliness and our pain. And so that ancient preacher tells them and us, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Really? You are not alone. There is someone who knows. Someone who who knows you, because... The thing about loneliness, I mean, and it doesn't matter here if you're a Christian or not, right? We all, we all feel loneliness, but the pain of loneliness isn't so much an absence of people, right? I mean, it seems like it should be, but come on, let's be honest. Sometimes it's really great to be alone. Some of you are like begging for a little bit of alone time. Sometimes it's awesome to be alone, but it's never a, an enjoyable experience to feel lonely. I mean, isn't that interesting? Well, what's the difference? You see, loneliness isn't just the absence of people. Loneliness is the feeling of being unknown, unseen, and therefore unloved. We all long for that person who knows us, for for that one who, who, who sees who we truly are deep within and yet accepts us anyway. And so this ancient preacher says, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. You're not alone. Crazy as it sounds. You see, the, the God that Christians believe in isn't just somewhere over the rainbow, distant and irrelevant. No, the God we believe in walked this earth, came near to us, felt our weakness, a God who actually hurt, who was actually truly tempted to do the wrong thing, who was just like us in every way, but without sin. I mean, no other religion or worldview makes that claim. And and so as we work our way through these verses this morning, I mean, we're going to spend most of our time really in those three verses, right at the end of chapter 4, 4, 14, 15, and 16. We'll get into 5, 1 through 10 a little bit, um, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about some of the, the themes that come out in those, those later verses. But as we, as we look, I want to break our time into two sections. First of all, we're going to say that only our God knows. 
And, and second, as a result of this, only our God can truly be known. For Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Only our God knows. And this, for the writer, makes him worth holding on to. That's how he begins in in verse 14. Look there, Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Well, why? I mean, seriously, why why should we hold fast? Why Why should they, given all that they're going through or will go through, all that we're going through or will go through, why is Jesus actually worth it? He says, only Jesus, only our God, only he knows. What does he know? He knows our weakness, and he knows our temptation. He knows how weak we are. You see, I try to convince my kids occasionally, I mean, just for fun, you know, um, that I'm actually a superhero, Batman is my preference. I mean, who wouldn't want to be Batman? Uh, and so I will, you know, go into these long and elaborate discussions and explanations of how I'm actually the Dark Knight and that, you know, Nathan, and especially Pastor, right, is just sort of an alter ego, you know, kind of my, my hidden identity. Uh, and, and they're at the, the ages where they'll almost believe it. I mean, they're like, you know, looking at their mom to see if I'm telling the truth kind of thing. Um, they want to believe trouble is, they just, they just know better. They know me too well, right? Uh, they, they've seen my frailty. They, they know that, well, they like me, but super, you know, I'm not. They, they see that. And the reality is, I mean, our weakness as humans, it's just obvious to everyone, right? I mean, think about it. We get, we get sick. I had the flu three weeks ago. It was so bad. There was a point where I almost begged God, like, Jesus, just take me now, right? I mean, let's just get it over with. I mean, it was that awful. We get, we get sick or, or we hurt, our bodies hurt, or, or we have relations. I mean, we're terrible at relationships oftentimes. Or the fact that we as humans, we're always needing something. And when we don't feel like we need something, there's always at least something we're really desiring, right? It never ends. And then, of course, we die. So, I mean, anybody want to argue that we humans aren't weak? No, it's, it's obvious. So who cares that God knows we're weak? Who doesn't know that we're weak? But listen, it's not simply that God understands the theory of our weakness. You know, in the sense that, you know, like God knows everything kind of way. It doesn't just sort of slide in there. No, it's, it's different than that. Here's the miracle. Our God has been weak. He made himself weak for our sake. Look at, look at verse 15. Look what he says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Our high priest, Jesus, that's, that's what the author is referring to here. He knows. But even think about that. Why, why is that such a big deal? I and mean, why is it a big deal that Jesus knows experientially and not just theoretically how weak we are? Well, think of it this way. Um, ladies, just imagine for a moment. I wouldn't actually ever do this, okay? But just imagine for a moment that I said, I know what it's like to be pregnant. Okay? I don't 
don't throw anything at me yet, okay? Um, but think about that. I could, I could study it. I could become an OBGYN. I could interview pregnant women. I could write a book on the subject, and there would be a sense in which I could actually truly say, theoretically, I know what it's like to be pregnant. But you'd still want to throw something at me, wouldn't you? Because it's just not the same, right? There's something about the the experience that changes the conversation. For me to say that I understand what it's like to be pregnant as a man sounds just patronizing. But you see, our God, he doesn't just know the theory of how hard it is to be a human. He's really, truly, literally, actually been there. So when he comforts us, when he tells us to keep trusting even in the midst of, of, of how hard it is, when he claims to actually know the best way to live, he doesn't do so as a man trying to comfort a pregnant woman, but as one of us, as one who actually knows how you feel. And I've got to tell you, for me, this is perhaps one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible. Because sometimes life stinks and it hurts, and we feel alone. And just think, our God knows. Think about that. Kids, for example, Jesus was a kid once. He had to obey his parents, even when he didn't want to, even when he thought his parents were wrong, he had to obey them. He had to deal with siblings. He had to go through puberty. He had to, he had to learn figure out what life was supposed to be like. He had to deal with bullies and and people who didn't like him. You are not alone. He had to work. He had a job, right? He had to struggle to make ends meet. He was a a poor carpenter. He knows what that's like. He felt disappointment, hunger, tiredness. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. You realize that? in John chapter 10. Every funeral I've ever done, I've preached that story because there in John 10, even Jesus weeps broken before the death of someone he loved. You're not alone. Or or what about in in other areas? I mean, some of you are in terrible physical pain, right? I've I've heard some of your stories and the agony that you experience day in and day out, this, this pain in your body. And I don't know what that's like. I've not experienced that, but Jesus, he felt the whip on his back. He felt spikes pounding through his flesh. You're not alone. Or or some of you feel abandoned. Or maybe you've been abused by someone who was supposed to respect you, to care for you, to love you. Maybe your relationships are in shambles. Jesus knew about all those. Nobody's more innocent, right, than the Son of God and the people that he came to save, his own people, right, who were supposed to receive him, rejected him. He knows what it's like to be abused by the people supposed to care for you. And his his relationships, I mean, give me a break, right? All of his best friends either abandoned, denied, or betrayed him. And those are the people that liked him. Everyone else shouted, crucify him. You are not alone. And some of you, Maybe you're frustrated by your singleness. I can feel pretty lonely. Think of what it was like for Jesus as a 33-year-old single Jewish male in the first century. You don't think he had needs? You don't think he got lonely? You don't think he felt the social pressures around him in that day? 
You're not alone. Yeah, but Nathan, I'm married. And believe me, that's my problem, right? Some of, some of you are thinking that. Well, Jesus was never married, right? And that's like kind of the hard part of my life. Well, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But he did understand the complexities of relationships, certainly, dealt with those. And even though he wasn't married then, I mean, according to this, he's married now to us, the church. And you think you're stuck in a lousy marriage? Because we're, I mean, we're a real peach of a wife, aren't we? Let's be honest. He knows. And yet he's still faithful. Continually pursues. He knows you are not alone. Yeah, but what about raising kids? I mean, that's, my goodness, how many sleepless nights, right? Raising kids is so hard. How does he possibly know? Well, think about that. God the Father watched his only son crucified for the sins of humanity. Do you not think that he felt that? As a father would? Even more? Or or think about God's first children, Adam and Eve. How'd that work out? I mean, really, just, you know, as a side, parents, if you're trusting your abilities, right, you're going to do everything right, make all the right choices, and if, if everything goes just according to your plan your kids are going to turn out perfectly? How'd that work for God? The perfect parent and his first kids broke the world, Adam and Eve. And now, through Christ, he adopts us, right? Sons and daughters welcomed into his family. Have you ever seen, no offense, an uglier family, right? More dysfunctional than we are? You are not alone. And your depression... Maybe you're overwhelmed by grief to the point of despair. Have you, have you read the story of Jesus in the garden the night before his crucifixion? His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, it says. He cried out to God, weeping before him, begging, begging God, his father, struggling to trust him in those moments. You are not alone. And I don't want to just slap this on, whatever pain you happen to be experiencing. There is nothing, nothing in the world that comforts me like this comforts me. That our God is not immune to the suffering of our world. That he's not set apart from the brokenness. I mean, he could have been, right? He didn't have to come to rescue us. He didn't have to experience, but he willingly did, and he felt the full force of all that this, this reality has for us. All the pain. Our God is not immune. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows how much it hurts. He knows how hard it is to trust. Which really only makes me want to trust him more, right? That's not the only thing he knows. He also knows the place where we're weakest. I think this is really the primary weakness that the author is, is talking about. Here, he knows our constant temptation, not as a man trying to comfort a pregnant woman, but as one of us. I mean, we've we've all had that friend, right, who no matter what you tell them, like they always come back with a story of like this ten times worse or whatever. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
Or, or, or you're sharing, you know, from your heart with somebody, right? You're trying to explain a frustration or a difficulty, maybe a temptation. You're just, you're laying it all out there and they respond so quickly back to you. Oh, I know exactly how you feel and kind of go off onto their own thing. Anybody else want to punch that person, right? I do. But Jesus, he actually knows I mean, verse, verse 15, let me, let me read it again from the start. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned, not once. But he was tempted just like us in every way. Come on, give me a break. Right? That just feels like it's going too far, doesn't it? I mean, we can sort of agree, okay, he felt our weakness. Yeah, but that he actually, I mean, the son of God, right? God himself, I'm sure it was really hard for him to fight against sin, right? I mean, don't, don't you feel that way when you read passages like this? Like, come on, you don't know what it's like. I mean, you haven't, you haven't fought the battles I have fought, right? Because you just never gave in. How does, how does he possibly know what we're feeling in our temptation? Does anybody else deal with that? I mean, I do. C.S. Lewis gives a, a powerful metaphor uh, that really helps help me understand this a little bit better. Lewis is writing during the times, time of, of World War II, uh, and he asks the question, who knows more about the battle? The army that fights against the Germans for, you know, a couple of hours and then surrenders, right? Or the army that fights for days, weeks, months, the army that actually dies to the last man on the battlefield, but never surrenders. Who actually knows what it's like to fight? Who actually understands the battle? The one who gave in or the ones who never gave in? A professor of mine explained it like this. Um, back, in, back in college, he said, as a human, temptation is constant, right? Pretty much. We're almost always feeling something pulling us in a variety of directions. And he, and he said, though, think about it. The only, the only chance you and I as humans, the only break we get from temptation or surefire break is those three seconds after we give in, right? Just before the shame hits, right? And you feel like, okay, oh, right, the fight, you kind of get to relax a little bit. Well, Jesus never even felt that relief from temptation. It was constant so Lewis, kind of summarizing this, he says, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded tempta- temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So what that means is that Jesus, not only was he truly tempted, but Jesus felt temptation stronger, deeper, harder than any of us ever have. And yet he didn't give in. All of his life felt that tug. And so whatever, whatever you're feeling, whatever, whatever your temptation is, your, your struggle is, do you believe that Jesus actually knows? That he under, understands? You are not alone. Tempted in every way, just like we are, in every way. And do you know Jesus' biggest temptation? And we can talk about anything, ways that Jesus must have experienced a variety of things, right, as, as, a, as a human living in this, this world. But I think his primary 
temptation. It's pretty clear in, in Scripture. It's, it comes out in a few different places. Um, I think his primary temptation uh, was to drift away from what he was supposed to do and to do his own thing instead. I mean, to stop trusting God the Father and to head out on his own. Kind of sounds like us, right? Kind of sounds like every, every temptation I've ever experienced. But that's what Jesus felt. It was early on in his ministry, for example, Jesus spent 40 days tempted in the wilderness, tempted to find another way. That was kind of the big idea there. You can read about it in Matthew 4, where he struggles with that. Tempted to find another way, to subvert the mission, to do his own thing. Tempted to become the king without the cross. And I think this is what the author is talking about in Hebrews. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think we could apply it to broad temptation, right? To anything that we're experiencing, because he says in every way. But I think specifically, the author is talking about what Jesus felt there in those moments. Because it wasn't just the wilderness, it's also the garden. Right, we mentioned that story. Matthew 26, you can read it there, for example. The night before his death, it's where Jesus, right there in the garden, on his knees before God the Father, he, he's saying, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to experience all of this. Isn't there possibly another way? Please, let me go another way. And did you hear what the, the preacher said in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8? Let me, let me read that again, because this is where it sort of ties it together. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8, just a couple verses after what we're talking about here. He says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. I mean, that was in the garden. The author of Hebrews, he's, he's referencing back to that temptation that Jesus experienced there in that moment. Now, some of you, probably most of you, maybe all of you are probably thinking at this point, okay, that's interesting. What's, what's the point here? What, what are we getting at? Well, think about it. What was that ancient church tempted to do? Right, the one we've been talking about. They're tempted to drift, right? To, to, to drift away as the challenges kept getting harder and harder in the world around them, to, to give up, to throw in the towel, to stop trusting. What was Jesus tempted to do? To drift away from the mission that God had called him to. As the challenges got harder and harder and harder, he was tempted to stop trusting. I mean, don't you see? The very worst temptation you and I can embrace is to drift away from God, to stop trusting, to do our own thing, to find our own way. And even Jesus, both in the wilderness and in the garden, was tempted to do the exact same thing. But he didn't drift. Friends, he actually knows how hard it is. He understands your doubt. He had to deal with those too. He understands your, your struggles, your fears. He knows what, what that's like. He, he doesn't just imagine how hard it must be for us humans to trust God. He knows how hard it is to trust God. He knows what it's like to be put in a situation where you have to choose between the right thing and the easy thing. And he knows how hard that is. And every temptation you and I ever experience really just comes down to one question. Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? And even Jesus had to answer that same exact question. And I don't know what that does for your faith or for your struggle. I don't presume to know, but for me, um, it makes all the difference. 
It makes me want to to love and trust this God all the more, to give him more and more of my life, no matter how it gets, because he knows, he knows what it's like, and he apparently, he says he's found a better way, and I want to trust him. And if he rose from the dead, then I want to be with him. And no other religion makes these claims. I mean, think about it, right? Who would make this stuff up, really? I mean, who would invent a God who intentionally embraced weakness? who actually struggled with temptation, not just any temptation, but a temptation to subvert the the mission that he was on, right? To rescue humanity. Who would make this stuff up? Seriously. Christianity is either the biggest hoax, and we should all just be laughed off the stage, or it's the greatest news the world has ever seen. And I, I know that you may not believe in this God, okay? Many of you don't, and I understand, I think, that. I mean, these, the claims uh, that God makes, that Jesus makes, they're, they're incredible. They, they're hard to believe. I, I get that. So you, you may not believe in this God, but hearing words like this, I mean, you've at least got to want them to be true, right? I mean, who wouldn't? Only Jesus, only this God knows exactly how you feel. And because he knows, he can be known. So what does all this mean for us? That only our God can be known. Well, the preacher tells us here in verse 16, kind of as we transition into the, the what, now into the, to the why. Um, tells us in verse 16. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. I think there are three things here, just to point out. Um, We won't spend a ton of time on each of them. The three things that I see jump out of that for me is that that he's approachable, he is welcoming, and he is generous. That this God who knows us, this God who can be known, is approachable, welcoming, and generous. First, he's approachable. If God understands our weakness and our temptation, we can go to him, but only because he's made a way. I mean, that's the, the point of all this high priest language in these verses. We didn't spend a lot of time on that. Um, we talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago. We'll talk about it a lot more uh, in the coming weeks. What does it mean for Jesus to be this new and great high priest? So we'll, we'll get there. But the, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the high priest essentially brought people into the presence of God or, or made a way. It was sort of this, this bridge between uh, people and God. But he, he did so inadequately, right? Because he's just another sinful human. One of the primary roles of the high priest came on the Day of Atonement. And that particular day is kind of a, a religious festival, right? This, this big deal in the Jewish calendar. On that day, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred place of the temple, right there in the presence of God. But only he could do it, and only once a year. And he did it to, to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. It's kind of an A for effort sort of thing. It's trying. But our high priest, Jesus, he offered the final sacrifice through his death and resurrection. And now we have a high priest who instead of just going to the Holy of Holies, right, going to the presence of God once a year on our behalf, now we have a high priest who takes us by the hand and says, come with. Come before his presence. Stand there, not just one day a year, any time, all the time that we can be now in the presence of this God. Jesus didn't become weak simply for kicks. He became weak to die. 
He became weak to make a way. And because of Jesus, our God is approachable. And if this is who God is, why don't I go to him more? Why don't I, why don't I run to his presence more to, to, to give more of myself to him, to, to, to know him better? And if you haven't given your life to him, I mean, you will be, sadly, you'll be left on the outside looking in by your own choice. I mean, only Jesus offers this. Only with him is there forgiveness. Only with him is there understanding. So will we go to him? But he's not just approachable. I mean, because that could still be kind of scary, right? To stand in the presence of a holy God, you know? Knowing our own sins and, and God's righteousness, his perfection. And yet this passage says that he's also welcoming. It's the idea of confidence there. That it is with confidence that we can go to him. Uh, look again at chapter 5, okay? Um, again, this is talking about the Old Testament high priest, but there's overlap here. He's, he's using the Old Testament priesthood to point to, to who Jesus is. And look what it says in verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. I mean, he understands our weakness, our ignorance, our waywardness, for he has been weak. You know, for me, when I'm, when I'm struggling with temptation, I mean, whatever it is, you name it, right? I've got my list, right? There's this all kinds of things that I have to regularly fight against in my life to not, to not give in to. But when I'm, when I'm doing that, you know, sometimes in my better moments, like, yeah, you know, maybe I should, like, pray about this, right? Maybe I should come to Jesus with, with these things that I'm dealing with. But so often when I do that, when I have that thought, you know why I picture him, Jesus, when I come? Kind of like this. Again, Really? You know, shaking his head, arms crossed, disapproving and disappointed. Or, or, or when I come to him in a moment of, of weakness, maybe it's not necessarily a temptation, but a, a time of pain or heartache when I'm feeling depressed. I mean, I've shared how I deal with that from time to time or, or just plain lonely, whatever it is. And I, and I go to him one more time to say, Jesus, help me. I, I still, I tend to picture him again, just sort of, you're such a baby. You know, stop whining, Nathan. Get over it. Man up. But that's not what this says. Not even close. No, instead, picture him with, with compassion in his eyes. Picture him when we come. When I come, he says, Oh, Nathan, I've struggled with that too. Oh, Nathan, I've dealt with that. I man, I, I know how hard that is. I know what you're feeling there. Yeah, Nathan, I, I, I get it. I understand. But I, I didn't give in, Nathan. You don't have to either. And that, that hurt that you're feeling, that pain, that, that loneliness, whatever it is, yeah, Nathan, it does hurt. I mean, he's not going to water it down. He knows. Man, it stinks. But I'm with you. I'll, I'll never leave you. Friends, Go to him with boldness. I mean, why don't I pray more to a God like this? Why don't I love him more, worship him more, obey him more, trust him more? He stands with open arms embracing the weak, welcoming sinners, even, even me. And that's not all. 
Because really, if you think about it, an understanding is, is still inadequate. I mean, the fact that he knows that he gets it, it's, it's still not enough, right? Because it doesn't solve any of our problems. It gives us comfort and hope. But there's no way forward there. But this God is also generous. Let me read all of 15 again, or 16 again. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His throne is built with grace. I love that, that phrase. It's kind of a weird one. It actually only appears here in the whole Bible, this idea of a throne of grace. And I think it's just because, I mean, it's such a weird idea, Right? Throne of grace. I mean, nobody thinks of a, of, a great, of, of a throne with grace. We think of a throne with power, with justice, with authority, with, with making wrongs right. But here, it's grace. Grace that is offered to us. Forgiveness, hope, mercy, life, that he pours it out generously upon us. And not just whenever we want it, not just whenever we think we need it. I mean, do you, do you see that there? But always in time for our moment of need, he says always in time. Go to him. Go to him with boldness. Go to him with expectation. He will not leave you empty-handed because only Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He entered this world for our sake, became weak to rescue us. I mean, he was abandoned on the cross, right? God the Father abandoned him because he was bearing the weight of all of our, of our, our sin. If anyone actually ever felt alone, it was him. But he felt alone so that we would never, never be alone. And he rose again so that he could offer us the life that we long to live. And listen to this. Your weakness your temptation, I don't care what it is, will not have the last word because he's not weak anymore. He rose from the grave and he stands victoriously there now on our behalf, the the victor, the king, and he promises to come back and he promises to make this heart and this world right. He will make it right and only he can rescue it kind of reminds me a little bit of a story I read a few weeks ago. It's an older story, but it just kind of fits what we're talking about uh, this morning. It's about this, this group of, of hostages, American hostages, that were uh, taken captive for quite a long time. And these Navy SEALs, a handful of them, came to, to rescue the hostages, right? And when they burst into the, the terrible place where they were being held captive, um, the hostages all cowered in fear. And they were terrified. And they were like, well, we're, we're Americans. We're here to rescue you. We're, come, come on, come, come with us. They, they didn't. I mean, they just, they just cowered in the, in the corner. They had, they had been abused too long. The, the, the pain was, was too severe. The loneliness, they'd given up hope that rescue was possible. They assumed it was just a, another cruel trick that their captors were playing. And so they, they refused to believe. And so they refused to be rescued. And then this soldier, one of them, had an idea. And he, he took off all of his gear, his helmet, his gun. He had great risk to himself, right? He's in the middle of a hostage raid. But he took it all off. And he laid down on the cold, filthy ground right in the midst of them, huddled up beside them, touching them. 
They could see him, hear him, feel him. He was looking deep into their eyes. He made himself one of them. He made himself weak for their sake. And soon they believed. Because their captors would never do that. Only someone bent on rescue, someone who loved them enough, only, only someone there for good could do that. And so they believed. And they were saved. So tell me, who wouldn't want to follow a God like that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I feel so inadequate even talking about such things. God, the truth of your word, it cuts deeply, exposing who we are in the very depths of our weakness and our sin, and yet at the same time brings medicine and bandages and healing. And Lord Jesus, we need both. We need a God who doesn't just tolerate us, who doesn't just put up with our junk. We need a God who hates evil. But God, we know we're part of the problem. So the fact that at the same time, you are a God who finds a way through your son, Jesus, to destroy the evil in our world without also destroying us. God, it's amazing that you, Lord Jesus, that you would give up all the rights of heaven, that you would come down to this earth, that you would become a man, that you would suffer and die in the most humiliating way simply because you love me. God, I pray that you would grip us with that truth. God, for those who are hurting and feel alone in their pain or their, their situation, God, I pray that in this moment they would know that you are with them that you know how they feel, that you long to hold them. God, for those who, who don't know you, God, who don't believe that you are who you say you are, God, I pray that you would be gracious to them, that you would re- reveal who you are to them, that they would find you irresistible. And Lord Jesus, help us together as a church worship you, for you are our God. In Christ's name.